stop loss insurance basically puts a cap if we exceed an X amount, the stop loss insurance will kick in. So there is sort of that protection, if you will. And then there's also aggregate stop loss that you buy at a much larger scale to say, if the plan as a whole exceeds X percent, we're going to be covered. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. Sean Mohan is the Senior Director of Total Rewards at Fragment. He's an analytical guy who likes to make sure his employees are engaged with benefits that are being offered. He also offers good insights on the difference between being fully insured and self-insured. Let's learn more and dive right in. Sham Mohan, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? Hi, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Hope you're well, too. I am. I can feel some good energy coming through this mic. Uh, We are doing it through a mic. I uh, obviously because of these times, I typically like (laughs) to sit down and uh, shake your hand and look you in the eye. But uh, we're going to do what we're going to do today. We can do a virtual fist bump. That's we'll do that. (laughs) yeah the corona the corona high five. Exactly. (laughs) So, Sean, for those who don't know you, if you don't mind, just give kind of like a, a quick synopsis of uh, who you are and what you do. And then what I'd like to do is then kind of roll into some rapid fire questions just to give the audience a better sense for your personality. And then what we'll do is I want to dig in to exactly what you do, how you got here and you know any kind of tidbits of advice that you'd be kind enough to share with us. So uh, if you'd be kind enough, uh, give us a 30 second overview. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Sean Mohan, I've been in the HR space for a long time now, <laughs> you know, approaching uh, over 15 years, you know, not your most traditional, you know, route that people take into HR, but I love it. And uh, right now I'm the senior director of Total Rewards and HRIS uh, for Fragment. Fragment is an immigration law firm. Uh, we have practices all over the world and uh, we're the leader in providing immigration services. Uh, and global mobility services to our clients. So, uh, you know, been there over two years now. Um, and before that, I was at various different companies in pharmaceuticals. So, uh, started my career in J and J. Was at Watson Pharmaceuticals, which through a, a myriad of M and A activities, ended up being Allergan. So, was there for that whole journey, where I, you know, I would say really, you know, grew my career within, you know, compensation and then benefits. Uh, and then in HRIS, and then I, I joined G&W Labs, which is another pharmaceutical company, uh, as the head of total rewards there. And then, uh, and I, I'm at Fragment. 
Interesting. Did you know that you were going to always, did you always know, I should say, that you were going into HR? <laughs> no way. <laughs> I mean, in undergrad, I did uh, economics and information technology. I had a bunch of consulting IT gigs lined up and it just didn't feel right. And, you know, I was at Rutgers, so I did my undergrad at Rutgers. And you know, as we were graduating, I was already with uh, my wife at that time. So she was my girlfriend then, but we were talking and she was asking me different things and what I wanted to do. And I just always had this background mind about helping people and trying to do something that encompasses that within a business setting. And then, you know, at the time, HR was going through a transformation, you know, HR in itself as a function has gone through a big transformation from being, you know, personnel management and what you think of traditional HR is sort of the dry and rules and guidelines. But what you think of HR is being the police, if you will, but it's really was changing into a strategic function. When I sat in and Rutgers has a great uh, HR program, master's program that I got in touch with a couple of professors. They, they let me sit in on some classes. And I was, I was really interested in it. And I had really, I mean, I obviously heard of HR as a department, but I didn't really know a lot about it. So, you know, I think I had a, a clean slate without any kind of preconceived notion. So just sitting in on those classes was really eye-opening. I really liked the strategic side of it, the business side of it. And then I applied to the program, got in. Rutgers had one of the top three programs in the nation. So again, I got in and I was happy about that. And then I just went with it. And then I got an internship at J&J and lo and behold, I ended up in HR recruiting and then got into compensation and then led to all these career moves that happened. So yeah, definitely not something that I had planned. <laughs> so interesting. And what you explained is essentially the, that was the genesis behind this show is that so many <clears throat> people, they just don't understand what it is or they don't know how intricate HR is to the business itself and that, yeah, that real yeah. needs to support. So yeah, I, I, li I like to hear that. And, and now don't you have two master's degrees? I do. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I did my first master's at Rutgers uh, in HR management. And then I went back and completed a second master's in employee and labor relations, both from Rutgers. So yeah, I mean, Rutgers uh, has, uh, <laughs> has seen a lot of my time. It's interesting. So decent amount of people that I've been speaking with have come out of similar programs. And uh, uh, yeah. a lot of them are sitting at the helm of HR, uh, whether it's yeah. CHROs or people like yourself that are sitting in, you know, it, one area of the C-suite. I'm assuming that is a pretty good program. What are the other ones? Is it Cornell, their labor? Cornell and I, I believe Michigan. Uh, this is again, going back yeah. a few years. I don't know what the, the rankings are now, but definitely Cornell is up there. Depending on who you talk to, it's either Cornell, Rutgers, and I think Michigan is the other one. Gotcha. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about you. Would you consider yourself an introvert, an extrovert, or kind of in the middle of that, what they call a, a centrovert? Or yeah. I would probably say more naturally an introvert. Where I get my energy from is, you know, being more quiet, more reflective, and then sort of acting. Naturally, I think I'm not an extrovert. I can push myself to be that. And I think being in HR and you can turn that self on, but I think naturally I'm more of a quiet, reflective type person and gain my energy and do my work in a quiet setting. So I would say I'm more of an introvert. Gotcha. And do you think that that lends itself to your role? I think it does. I think within HR, there's different roles, right? I think as an HR business partner where you're much more client facing, again, for HR, our clients are the business. So, you know, you're working with you know, various leaders. I think you have to be more extroverted to get out there and, you know, know what the employees are doing, what gauge the culture, gauge the, the feel of the, the workforce. 
For me, I'm in a more analytical role, which is again where my passion lies with sort of words, hence why I ended up in that sort of functional area within HR. So I think being a little bit more introverted lends you to, you know, spend hours on a spreadsheet or an analysis and, you know, put presentations together. And then, you know, obviously, but then at the same time, you have to have an extroverted side as you become a leader within the space, because you have to have that strategic mindset and then, you know, be able to articulate the strategy and all the numbers and, you know, really put it into a two or three bullet point summary at sometimes and present it to executive committee or your, you know, various boards of directors. So you have to have an extroverted side that's able to present articulately uh, in, in a clear, concise fashion. So you have to have both, but obviously, you know, naturally, I think being more introverted helps on in more analytical roles. Gotcha. So is that analysis, those analytical skills that you've acquired, what has led to your nickname that uh, Leslie was kind enough to share with me? They call you the wizard? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, my, my Leslie, who is my boss now, she uh, nicknamed me the wizard. Obviously, I have a passion for that. And I have that nerdy side of me where I'm happy to sit behind an Excel spreadsheet. A lot of my friends and family will make fun of me. I literally plan all my life in an Excel spreadsheet. So down to vacations and everything. And, I, and that's just the way I organize things. And I see an Excel spreadsheet somewhat of a piece of art. So it's not just about the data, but it's how you present the data and making it look pretty. So yeah, I guess I earned that nickname, which is, is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Hey, so tell me a, a habit that you have, whether it's good or bad. One of the habits that I have that I think is good, one of the good things is I try to do something in the morning for myself. Uh, and this is something that I think inherently I was more of a morning person to get stuff done, even, you know, for my school days, I would always study in the morning, do things in the morning. But, you know, as you get older, you're, uh, <laughs> you have kids and you have other responsibilities and time is always such a commodity. So mm -hmm. I would definitely say doing something for myself in the morning, the days that I'm able to do that, I can just see that the day gets off on the right foot, if you will. Instead of, you know, you get up and you're just scrambling with emails and everything else, but just doing something for yourself, either a workout or doing something that you want to do, just, I think, gets you in the right frame of mind. A bad habit that I have is definitely binge watching shows, which is not never a good thing at night. <laughs> it's like a cycle, right? And as you get older, you start binge watching the show and then you get late and you can't get up early. So, you know, it's a kind of cruel cycle. But you know, once you get into something, it's, uh, you can't get out of it. Sometimes. I share that, my friend. What are you binge watching now? We're watching on Netflix, uh, Dead to Me, uh, which Ooh, has definitely. been interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it didn't, was not what I expected, but it, it's been pretty cool. Cool. All right. I have to look that up. Tell me something that most people don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, I think in the professional space, a lot of people don't know that I play uh, the Indian drums, the tablas. So I've been doing that from a very young age. Uh, I started at the age of five, and it's been a big part of my life. It still is. And at some point in college, I was actually considering going professional and just doing that. I was playing a lot of concerts and I was doing a lot of tours of the country and I had performed a lot and I was involved in a lot of different groups and different artists. But it's a tough lifestyle, definitely competitive and you have to get out there. And again, as an introvert, I like performing, but there's a lot of other things that come with that. You know, maybe it wasn't for me, you know, reflecting back on it. And I think it was the right decision. I still definitely play the drums almost on a daily basis. I teach a lot. I still play concerts, but it's, and obviously it's not what's putting uh, food on the table for the family. So it's definitely not the focus, but it's definitely a passion of mine. 
when you were asking what I do in the morning, many times is I just practice for a little bit, play a little bit. And that just helps me get again in the right frame of mind. It's meditative, helps me just sort of lock in and focus on one thing and just clear your mind, if you will. Oh, that sounds great. Now, let me ask you this. They say a lot of musicians are mathematically inclined. Have you found that the drums helped you with a lot of the an- analytics or has the learning a lot of the analytics and doing what you're doing helped or contributed to making you yeah. a better musician? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, because I mean, you think of mu- music as art and kind of, yeah, obviously there's a creative side to it. But yeah, I mean, definitely with drums, there's the rhythmic patterns. And with the Indian drums, there's a lot of very intricate patterns. So yes, I would say that side of my, you know, doing calculations and all of that, and how you play in different rhythmic cycles, definitely led itself to being in a more analytical role in my professional side with my career. So I would say, you know, that was the genesis of it. And whether it's helped on the flip side, yeah, I don't know. I think I just I had the inclination to it. And I, you know, that's how I learned. I mean, I'm still learning, I would say. I mean, I have a teacher that I you know, talk to. So that's, it's just part of innately you know, what I do. So I think it definitely did help with an analytical side of my career. Great. So let's transition over to uh, getting back to the analytics and what you're doing now. So you, you run a total rewards department. Pardon my ignorance, but if you don't mind, tell me exactly what is total rewards? <laughs> Total Rewards is you know, somewhat of a newer concept. I mean, when I say newer, I mean, I think it's, it's in, the, in the space, obviously, within HR. It's much more prevalent outside of the U.S., but it, basically Total Rewards is a phrase for compensation, so how you pay your employees, base, bonus, stock, you know, long-term incentives, if you will. And then on the benefit side, what insured benefits or perks are you offering to your employees? Uh, And any other type of rewards, right? So there's rewards and recognitions and other types of things. So the combination of all of that is basically total rewards. I think in the U.S., historically, compensation and benefits was always kept separately. And many times it makes sense to do that because benefits is really intricate in the U.S. There's a lot of regulations. There's a lot of compliance. And just the benefit plans that employers offer are a lot more robust. There's a lot more work with open enrollment that takes place. So it's a role in itself that really you can focus on. So hence, I think compensation was always kept separate from that. Outside of the U.S., I think where you have a lot more government-run benefit plans. So the benefit side, there's not as much work. So there's, again, the capacity to potentially have comp and benefits together. So hence, I think total rewards came together earlier outside of the U.S. and now it's slowly coming into the U.S. because I think, and you see it more so in the U.S. at the higher level roles, so where you're leading the total rewards function because from a strategy standpoint, it's where do you want to invest your money, right? From a talent perspective, it really makes a lot of sense to look at total reward across all of the platforms, compensation, benefits, and other rewards and recognition because it's, it's all about where do you want to spend your dollar, where are you getting the most value for that dollar for an organization. Gotcha. What's the biggest challenge that you see in your role? I think for the head of total rewards, it's there's different aspects to it, right? There's the operational aspect, making sure all your team is functioning at a high capacity and making sure the processes are running. But then there's a strategic element of taking a step back and looking at, are we getting the most value for where we're investing our money? Because end of the day, total rewards, we're spending the company's money on our human capital, right? So in its essence, we are spending money. Essentially, we're trying to invest in our employees. So how do we make sure every investment is returning its value? 
And that's really tough in some ways, always assess. It's not linear, right? Uh, you're paying someone a salary. You're paying someone benefits. So it's a package. So that's why you need to look at it both singularly, but also as, as a whole and making sure they're market competitive, but also that you're offering things that the employees value, right? All of us struggle with this, I think, in this space is you might launch a program that, you know, we think is really cool, but we're not seeing any uptake in it. We're not seeing employees engaging with it. They don't see value in it. So if they're not seeing value in it, then it's inherently doesn't make sense to offer that. But that's hard to always do, right? And how do you assess that? They might have one employee who does it, but, you know, 10 others won't. I think that that's the hardest part, I think, of the role is assessing each of your comp and benefit programs and making sure that they're, you know, you're getting your bang for your buck. Now, are these, do you typically have a certain amount of money allocated for each one of these perks, for lack of a better term? Or does it rotate depending on the the year? And then how often do you evaluate your programs? Is it something you do yearly, three years, five years? How does that work? you have to look at it constantly. So I definitely say annually, you need to look at it. Now, whether you make a change, that varies. It depends on obviously contracts and there's you know different things. Sometimes programs, certain things that you put into place, take a few years to take shape for employees to fully understand how you're marketing them. So sometimes you need a couple of years, but you should be assessing them every year for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, You should be looking at what you're doing, looking at how does that compare to the market? And I think there's real value there to make sure you have your eye on that. Because again, the way I look at it is you're investing in your employees. So just like if you're investing in in the financial sector, you're going to look at all the stocks and all the companies that you're investing in and you know the different portfolio that you have. And you want to make sure you're investing in the right places and you want to look at that all the time. Uh, so I see the same thing in your human capital, but it's a little bit nuanced because you're investing in something that the employee has to see value in also. Obviously, the employee will see value in a base salary and a bonus. The cash, obviously, who's not who's not going to see value in that? If anything, <laughs> they're not going to they're going to want more. But some of the softer ones or the benefit space, it's sometimes harder to assess whether they truly see value in it. And that's why you need to keep an eye on what you're offering and serving the employees, making sure the employees are seeing value in it. Interesting. Again, it all has to come down to the bottom line too for the partners yes, of the, yeah. Yeah, to the law firm. You had mentioned something to me the other day that I didn't fully understand, but I found really interesting. You were talking about being fully insured versus self-insured and how to know when to make the decision. And yeah. I'm assuming that's where your analysis and <laughs> skills come in. But if you don't mind just kind of educating me on, a, on what that means, how do you know when to pull the trigger? My last job as I entered, that was, this was a big decision that we were making uh, at GNW about going fully insured versus self-insured. And basically, it's about risk, right? So being a smaller companies, the ability to take on risk is tough. You know, it makes sense for employees. If you have less than 500 people, maybe being fully insured makes sense, but there's no risk, right? You know what your premium is, you pay it, regardless of how your employee's health is you're paying the same thing. So let's just say for round numbers, you pay a million dollars and you say, cover my employees. A couple of different plans, regardless of how much my employees use it, I'm going to pay a million dollars to you, right? That's a million dollars out of pocket from your company. And that doesn't matter whether they exceed it or don't even reach it. That's your flat fee. That's a fully insured, correct? Okay. Exactly. Yeah, you're paying a premium and you're basically saying, cover my employees. 
there could be a lot of surgeries, there could be a lot of pregnancies, there can be a lot of really high risk type things in the employee base that could drive up your costs. And maybe the usage is way above a million, but you're paying a million. Yeah. Or it could be the flip side where you have a really healthy or really young population and maybe you use 50% of that, uh, but you're just paying a million because as a smaller company, the risk is tough to the fluctuations from a cash flow perspective is tough to take on. So it's about risk. As a self-insured client, you're paying as the claims come in. So you obviously set a budget rate that you're working against, and then basically you're paying as claims come in. As companies get larger, it's something that you can handle. And also as you have more years of self-insured data where you can actually kind of see how your employee base is doing, how healthy are they, what are the different diseases that are part of the workforce. And as you have a better understanding of that, you can set your budget rates accordingly. And then you're basically betting on your employees, right? So mm-hmm. you're betting that hopefully they have a healthy year and you'll, you'll save, or you may have a bad year. But I think if you can handle that sort of up and down and you have the ability to take on that risk, it makes a lot of sense because again, you can promote a lot of wellness. You promote a lot of really healthy behaviors from your employees. Uh-huh to help drive down the cost. So you can sort of manage it, right? In all cases, sometimes there's something you you just cannot manage, right? If an employee has a really difficult pregnancy, what are you going to do? It is what it is, but those are one-offs. Being self-insured, you have more access to data as well. So you can see, uh, obviously all HIPAA compliant and there's no PI, you're not getting who has what, but you at least can see within your employee group what are the disease states? What are the surgeries that happen? And you can see, is this a one-off or is this a recurring one? And you can budget accordingly. So let me ask you this. So say you're, I'm just trying to think of, the, of a listener who could be hearing this right now. They're at a company, mm-hmm. I don't know, let's call it three to 500 people. The things that they should be assessing prior to figuring out if they should go fully insured or self-insured is, okay, do I have enough years of data to take a look to see if there's, this is something that we can manage? My question is, what are the things that they should be evaluating to decide if this is something that they should do? Well, I think it's a conversation with finance and upper management also about cash flow and what's the worst case, right? Along with, you know, I'll just mention along with self-insurance, typically companies will buy stop-loss insurance. Okay. So stop-loss insurance basically puts a cap if we exceed an X amount, the stop-loss insurance will kick in. So there is sort of that protection, if you will. And then there's also aggregate stop loss that you buy at a much larger scale to say, if the plan as a whole exceeds X percent, we're going to be covered. So there are some stop gaps there, definitely, but you're paying, you know, obviously a premium for those as well. But I would say, you know, first is looking at, does it make sense from a risk standpoint? I think that the conversation has to start with finance uh, and your management to see, okay, if we were to move to self-insurance, yes, we could potentially get savings. But if we have a really bad year, are we able to absorb that? Are we able to not impact the business so negatively that it'll be catastrophic, right? That's really the conversation. How financially secure is the company to handle that? Then secondly is looking at the employee population, you know, seeing what the, you know, the various medical conditions potentially are, and then making the call. With self-insurance, the tricky part is, what are you setting your budget rate as? What are you setting your 100% marker as? Because in your first year, you don't have a lot of data. Being fully insured, you get some data, but not a lot. You don't have access to all the data. You're sort of picking a dollar amount <laughs> for the first year based on you know, not, not a lot of data. 
and then hoping, you know, so typically you'll see that companies who go self-insured the first year is a windfall. You always win almost. Most companies will win in the first year. In the second year, now you have data so you can more accurately, precisely budget and, you know, set a, your 100% mark with some more accuracy. And then again, it's, are you beating that or you're exceeding that? And then every year it's this analysis that happens and then you're setting your budget rate. And again, on the flip side of it, you're also promoting wellness within your organization, right? Mm. You're rolling out various programs. This is where as a self-insured client, you can get access to much more robust data. You can see, okay, what are all the medical conditions? And let's just say diabetes is really high. You can roll out various diabetes programs, targeted programs to those employees to say, hey, again, you're not trying to call anybody out, but you can just roll it out. Uh, to employees say, hey, there's this really good resource here. And again, try to control your costs. It's, it's a, a portfolio of people that you're managing. <laughs> you got portfolio exactly. managers that manage the stocks. And, and <laughs> that's you got, right, yeah. You know, yeah. So maybe that's your new title. <laughs> you know, that could be it. You know, what are the biggest expenses that you're seeing, the, the fastest growing expenses that you've got to kind of keep an eye on? Is it a, a certain... Yeah medical condition? Is it surgeries? Is it pharmacy? Is it what are the things that you're seeing is the biggest burden and the biggest wild cards and uh, expenses? It depends on your employee base. Our employee base in the US is fairly young. So we are seeing a lot of pregnancies and that and if they're complicated, that's a lot of money that's going up. But those are also one offs. But definitely, I would say your medical and our expense is the majority of your benefit spend. And that's where it's a lot of cash out of the pocket. Obviously, employees have to get medical care and obviously any kind of prescription medication that accompanies that. And that's really what I've seen is the RX spend is huge. Coming from the pharmaceutical world, you definitely see that there's a delta, you know, how you're manufacturing the product versus what ultimately an employee is paying for. And there's a huge delta. So Mm. I think there's ways in the prescription drug plan, I think we had talked about this earlier, about where you can get really creative to bring those costs down and control the costs there. Obviously, the use of generics is inherently and built into a lot of the plans. You know, we at Fragomen have our RX carved in, which means it's accompanied with our Cigna medical plan. So it all kind of functions together. A lot of companies may look to break that apart and you look at RX separately and you can shop around and find different networks and vendors for that. I would say, you know, obviously the medical plan and the RX plan are where you're going to have the majority of your benefits spend in the U.S. That's, I mean, I I would say probably across all of countries, you know, just as humans, we're spending money, right? So that's where you always, and that's when, when you ask about looking at it annually, you're looking at those costs monthly mostly for self-insured, you know, every month you have to look at the data, see how it's trending, seeing how your employee population is basically using the plan because obviously there's so much usage happening on a daily basis. Wow. I didn't realize it was monthly that you're evaluating things. There's so much. So you're kind of air traffic controller for all of these different areas. That's a good way to say it. This is where you know you need to have a strong team, and this is why you know as we now we're getting into the detail. You had asked me earlier about some of the folks on my team are dedicated to U.S. benefits because there's just so much there, and then there's so many compliance-related things that we have to do, regulatory compliance things that we have to either filings or reporting, and obviously as the regulations change, they could change on a federal level, and then they also change on a 
on a state level. So you have to yeah. be uh, aware of all of that. So that's why, again, in the U.S., total reward many times is really compensate separate, benefits separate, because benefits is just so intricate and there's a lot of work that goes into it in the U.S. Wow. Let me ask you this. I just realized the time. I know we're running out here. I've got one question for you before I let you go. What was the best advice that somebody ever gave you? When I was at J&J, as I was an analyst, I was really much more quiet. And I would say that one advice that I got was don't be scared to ask questions. There's no stupid question. Uh, and you may think they're stupid and, you know, inherently they may, may not be the best question, but don't be scared because you will learn by asking questions. You engage at a different level when you're thinking of questions and you're wanting to get more information. So don't be scared of that. Yes, you can be quiet, but have your mind working in a way where you're thinking about things and don't be afraid to ask either in a, you know, obviously one-on-one setting is much easier, but even in group settings, you know, don't be afraid to share your thoughts, share your questions, because I think it'll lead to getting more information and then thinking about things in a different way. And I think that was really great advice for me because I was always really the quiet one. Yeah, I really want to thank you. I mean, this was yeah. awesome. I mean, someone that's looking to build a, a department or even just evaluate what they're doing is going to get a lot out of this conversation. So I, I really want to thank you for not just coming on the show, but just sharing all that insight. Of course. No, thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor to you know, be part of this and share my insights. And thank you for thinking of me and thank you for giving me this platform. All right. Make it a great day. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.